Our scripture this reading this morning is found in the 11th book, uh, 11th chapter of Acts, and we'll be reading the first 18 verses. Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying. In a, in a trance I saw a vision. An object descended like a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air, and heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house, who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you, by words, tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and upon us, as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized you with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? God, when they heard these things, they became silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then God hath also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Good morning. Man, it's looking better in here every week. Good to be here, isn't it? It is. And thank you, Doug and Donna, for your musical contribution today. We're, we're fortunate that you guys came to live with us here in Squim. Well, two weeks ago, we laid the groundwork for what we're going to think about for a few minutes together today and next Sabbath. The reason we'll do this is because you people... The Squim Church are a kind of cutting-edge congregation when it comes to this particular issue. And over the last month or so, you have been asked to make a decision regarding whether or not you will continue with what you have been doing for the last six months or six years. Specifically, that is, to retain Colette as a part-time pastoral leader in this church. What makes it a cutting-edge issue, of course, is not that Colette is my wife. That actually makes it kind of an awkward issue for me. What makes it cutting-edge is that Colette is a woman. Let me say here that I have not been a participant in the process of your decision, nor was I six years ago. I don't know how it's going to end up. John Gatchett has been leading that process at the board. I'm simply on a need-to-know basis. But your decision has been made. The cutoff date uh, has come and gone, so I believe I can speak freely without the burden of appearing to try to influence you financially one way or the other. So that's what I would like to do today. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to get right to it. Everywhere the gospel goes, it meets with opposition. It runs up against barriers. That's just the nature of it. In the days of the early church, the years immediately following the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, there was a huge barrier impeding the spread of the good news. Over and over again, you find this in the writings of the New Testament. Most of the fights... And the arguments and conflict that happened between Jesus and the religious leaders, 
and between the various factions in the book of Acts. Many of the problems Paul wrote about in his letters to the New Testament churches, they were all fueled by this major obstacle. And you know what that obstacle was. The intense prejudice that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. It was very, very real, especially in the minds of the Jews. It affected to a huge degree how they thought about non-Jews and how they thought God thought about non-Jews. That prejudice had been built up over centuries. It had been passed down from one generation and ingrained into the next. Even among the followers of Jesus, this religious-slash-racial bigotry was tenacious and persistent. Now, you know that the church was birthed almost exclusively from Jewish believers. God's plan all along had been to bring blessings to the Jews. They were his people. But... They had been chosen by him as his people so that he could use them to bring blessing to the whole world through their agency. That's the same reason he chose the church, by the way. It's the same reason you are here. It's to bring blessing to the whole world through the agency of the church. So, since God's plan, his larger purpose was to bring blessing to the Gentiles also, through the agency of the Jews, something had to be done early on in the very infancy of the church to demolish that barrier. Some miraculous turning point had to be reached in order for the gospel to go to the whole world. Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 is the story of that turning point. These two chapters are the turning point in the book of Acts. Everything before chapter 10 is preparation, having to do with Christianity among the Jews. But the story of Peter and Cornelius and the leaders of the early church in Jerusalem is the watershed event in the life of the new church. It is the inflection point of its trajectory. It is the catalyst after which the gospel explodes onto the stage of the world. And Christianity is never the same again. You know the story. Cornelius, a centurion, a Roman army officer, not a Jew, but a Gentile, not a Christ follower, but a God follower. Cornelius has a vision from God, and it's not a complicated vision. It's simple, and it's to the point. God tells him to send for a Jewish follower of God named Peter. Not a whole lot of explanation, just send some men, some men to a town called Joppa and have them bring back a guy called Simon, also known as Peter. When Cornelius awakes, he immediately obeys. No question, no explanation. He just does it. Maybe it's because Cornelius is a military man and he's been trained to just give orders and take orders. Maybe it's because his heart is open. Maybe it's because he's just got a real simple faith. Who knows? But it takes a day for, for his men to reach Joppa. And when they are almost to Joppa, God sends another vision to another man who happens to be relaxing up on his roof waiting for his dinner. He's hungry, maybe thinking about food. That man was Peter. Now the vision that God gives Peter is a whole lot more detailed than the one he gave to Cornelius. It's a lot more nuanced, as we would say today. Why? Because it's going to be a lot tougher for Peter to respond than it was for Cornelius to respond. Not because Peter's heart isn't open to God, it is, but because Peter's head and his thinking and his whole understanding is rooted in deep prejudice. His whole worldview is colored by this huge barrier between himself, a Jew, and people who are not Jews. 
In other words, between clean and unclean in people terms. What Peter is about to be told to do will not come naturally to him and it will not come easily for him. So God doesn't just give him an order. He gives him a story. Stories are critical. Stories grab a hold of us emotionally in a way that orders just don't. In the vision, Peter sees a big sheet coming down from heaven with all kinds of unclean animals in it, pigs and lizards and vultures, and a voice, presumably God's voice, tells him to kill them and eat them, which is just truly revolting to all that he has ever understood about clean and unclean foods. And Peter is not obedient to God in this vision. Surely not, Lord, he says. Well, don't you say that, God responds. Don't call anything impure or unclean that God has made. Verse 16 of chapter 10 says that that little conversation happened three times. Eat, God says. Each time Peter says, mm -mm, no way, nothing unclean, nothing impure has ever entered my mouth. I will not. Three times. Why did God give him that vision three times? Peter can't figure it out. But he knows it must mean something significant. But then immediately there comes a knock at the door downstairs. Three Gentiles have come calling. Three unclean people. And now God issues the command. It's not story anymore. Now it's an order direct from the Holy Spirit. Those three men downstairs are looking for you, Peter. So do not hesitate because Peter's natural response will be to hesitate. Do not hesitate to go with them because I have sent them. And Peter doesn't hesitate. And goes downstairs, he invites them in. As uncomfortable as that must have been for him, humiliating even to have a Gentile come into the house where he is. And the next day, he doesn't hesitate either. He goes with them, and he arrives at the centurion's house in Caesarea. He stands at the door outside. He takes a deep breath. Nobody in the whole Christian church has ever done this before. But Peter goes in. A bunch of people are inside. Friends and relatives that Cornelius has invited. The place is packed. Peter thinks, I've learned my lesson. He says, you guys are all Gentiles and I'm a Jew. But I'm inside your house now because God told me not to call you unclean anymore. Peter doesn't know the half of it yet. So tell me why you sent for me. Peter says. Cornelius tells him the story of his vision. And now, suddenly, Peter sees with crystal clarity the meaning of his own vision up on the roof. I now realize, Peter explains, how true it is that God doesn't show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. From every nation. The lights are coming on for Peter. So he begins to tell Cornelius and all these people who are gathered there about Jesus, about his life and death and resurrection. He tells them the gospel, the good news, how God saves people. And then, and then comes the most unbelievable thing of all. The Holy Spirit comes down on these Gentiles just like he'd done at the Jews at Pentecost. Peter stands there with his mouth hanging open as they praise God. They even speak in tongues, but they are Gentiles. Peter and his companions are absolutely flabbergasted. And by the way, Peter took some people along with him, you know, to that centurion's house. He knew he was going to need some witnesses in case he was called to account for what might take place. He didn't know it was going to take place. But he took, just to be safe, he took some along. But none of them were prepared for what happened that day. Nothing like that had ever happened before. And this is what Peter says 
in Acts chapter 10 and verse 47. He says, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. Can anyone keep this from happening? Why does he say that? Because there were many that would have liked to keep that Jew-Gentile barrier in place. But on that day, in that Gentile centurion's home, there was nobody. They'd all just seen an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. And so, the very first Gentiles were baptized that day into the Christian church. And the trajectory of the church was changed forever. People want to make this story in Acts all about food. It has nothing to do with food. It is about something way, way more important than clean or unclean food can ever be. It is about demolishing the dividing wall between clean and unclean people. It's about wrecking the bigoted stereotypes and assumptions that some people matter more to God than other people or that some classes of people are by design subordinated to other classes of people. Now it's true that things had been building up to this for quite some time. The prophets had foretold it and Jesus had prepared the way. His very life had been a preview of it by how he treated Gentiles and how he treated women. But this was the decisive moment when the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile came down. The time had finally come for an entirely new work to be started by the church. But Peter knew there would be a price to pay. Chapter 11, the story that Daryl read for us, there was a price to pay. Word got out what had happened to Cornelius and his family and other Gentiles who were coming to faith. Word got out. Verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him. In other words, the Jewish believers. They criticized him. They said, hey, you went into a Gentile house, a house belonging to uncircumcised people, and you ate with them. You ate with them. We, we don't understand the impact of what this, what's going on here because in our culture, to eat with somebody doesn't have the same force that it did in that culture. In that culture, to eat with somebody meant that you were entering into relational community with that person. The custom we have of the wedding cake, that's kind of a vestige that still hangs on in our culture of that thing, you know. But eating with somebody in that day meant that there would be no barriers between you. No barriers. You ate with them, Peter. How could you do that? You know that there is a huge difference between us Jews and those Gentiles. So Peter explained everything that had happened. He didn't leave out any of the details. He told them about his dream and the sheet and all the revolting creatures, how he'd refused God three times to his face. I don't eat unclean. How God had rebuked him three times. Don't call anything I've made unclean. He told them about the three Gentiles arriving at his house. About what the Holy Spirit had said to them. Don't you hesitate, Peter. You just go. He told them he'd gone, but he hadn't gone alone. And right there, Peter points to his companions. He says, look, I took these six brothers with me. They saw it too. They'll tell you what happened. They'll vouch for what I'm saying to you. You know, it's interesting that in, in Jewish law, you only needed two witnesses. Peter took six. They saw the Holy Spirit come down on these Gentiles in the home of Cornelius, just like he came down on us in the upper room. And then Peter says this, and remember, he's talking to the to the, he's in Jerusalem and he's talking to the leaders of the church at this point. And this is what he says. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could oppose God? And the Bible says, 
When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles, even the Gentiles, repentance unto life. It almost sounds grudging, doesn't it? Even the Gentiles. But at least they got it right. In the face of enormous ingrained prejudice, they got it right. And my hat is off to them. It's hard to realize that the old way may no longer be the best way. At least it is for me. It costs some, some pride. It requires some humility. But they were able to see the way the Holy Spirit was breaking the old barrier down, calling both Jews and Gentiles into a new community of faith. Now, consider this for a moment. It didn't have to turn out this way. It could have gone down differently. They could have said, no way, Peter. This is just not going to work. It's not right. Jews are on one level. Gentiles are on a different level. Separate, but equal. Gentiles have always been inherently subordinate to us Jews, and they always will be. It's just how God made it to be. So we must not allow this egalitarianism between groups of people to take root. If we do, it will split the church. But that's not what they said. They were willing to place themselves on the side where it was evident that the Holy Spirit was working, and so the church flourished. That didn't mean that all the prejudice problems were solved right away. They weren't. The old ways still lingered. There was still a lot of struggle. There always is when God is doing something new. Even Peter, even Peter wavered after being spoken to directly by God three times. In the third chapter of Galatians, Paul says Peter used to eat with the Gentiles all the time after that. He was living the new community until certain men from the leadership came. And Peter began to draw back and not associate with Gentiles anymore. And Paul writes that he opposed Peter to his face and called him out on that behavior. God told him it was wrong, that it denied the gospel. New truth takes time to take root. Nevertheless, from that watershed moment in the home of Cornelius, God worked to remove that huge barrier keeping the good news from the world. In the book of Galatians, Paul singles out three classes of human relationships in which one group is wrongly subordinated by another group, thereby erecting barriers to the gospel. In chapter 3 and verse 28, he emphatically declares, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. This is not a minor statement. This is not just a very specific statement written to a very specific circumstance. This is a broad New Testament principle. It is foundational. It is not merely a statement of equal access to salvation by different people groups, although it is that. Rather, it declares that in Christ, because of the gospel, God is calling all of his people back to his original ideal in terms of oneness, in terms of community, in terms of recognizing and celebrating and employing the giftedness and the calling of all his people. It declares that within the new community of believers in Christ, subordination of one group to another based on race or economic class or gender are barriers to the flourishing of the gospel and to the purposes of his Holy Spirit. Most of us look back now, at least I hope we can, and we realize that racially based discrimination really wasn't a good thing in the church. It still isn't. It's not in the wider society either, but especially within the church, even though it's tough to eradicate because we are all fallen people, it is not a good thing. It is not a correct thing. It is not keeping within God's original ideal for human beings. 
Most of us look back now and we realize that slavery within the church was not a good thing, although that didn't go easily either or quickly. So how about gender-based subordination? How are we doing with that one? And I would have to say that you people here in the Squim Church are doing better than probably 95% of other Adventist congregation in wrestling with this issue of gender-based subordination because you chose six years ago to hire a female pastor as an associate. You did that. I was not there when you made that decision, but I know it was not an easy one for you. It was not a slam dunk. There are some among us here who honestly believe as a matter of conscience or principle that God's word does not permit females to occupy positions of leadership over men within the family of God's church. Nine years ago, when the Pacific Union Conference and the Columbia Union Conference, the two largest unions in North America in terms of membership, voted to authorize ordination to the gospel ministry without regard to gender, they did it by a four-to-one margin. But it was not unanimous. Some of you know that within our church's system of governance, Approval for ordination to the ministry in the Adventist church is not made nor controlled by the local conference. It is not made or controlled by divisions of the general conference. Ordination is solely the prerogative of the unions. And since it is fully within the authority granted to the unions, it is appropriate for union conferences to vote on such matters. It is. As I understand it, union conferences were organized over a century ago so that the diverse working policies could be put in place to address diverse cultural settings of God's work throughout the world. It's not the same every place. Now I realize that even here in this little congregation, my guess is the ratio would probably be about the same as it was when the unions voted nine years ago, probably in the neighborhood of four to one, which means that out of 100 people in this room, there might be 20 or even more of you who honestly believe they made a moral misstep. So I want to be sensitive to that. My intent, my intent this morning is not to polarize but maybe there are a lot of us who have not thought about this deeply and who might be wondering down deep inside, is this really okay with scripture? I mean, there are some things that are said there that I say, wow, is this really okay to have women lead? And so we're gonna think about that for a, few, for a few weeks. And by the way, a pragmatic argument is sometimes offered the argument is, even if, it, if it's okay to let women lead or, or, or if it's okay to ordain them, people will say it's better not to do it because if we do, it might split the church. I would suggest that not doing it is already splitting the church. Five years ago, when the General Conference voted to restrict the unions from ordaining young women pastors. It was a huge blow to many, many of our young people, among whom are my two daughters. Two-thirds, two-thirds of all Adventists between the ages of 20 and 35 are missing from the church. There are many reasons for that, but one of the most frequently cited by this generation of young adults is what they refer to as gender discrimination within church leadership. They talk about that all the time. And it's not just the Adventist church that struggles with this, it's the Christian church in general. And I will also tell you another very difficult fact about the decision five years ago at the general conference. Prior to that vote, 
the General Conference commissioned a study by the brightest scholars in our church. And with the consensus of that group of scholars came back that there was no, there is no scriptural basis to forbid ordaining women that consensus was not allowed to become part of the decision-making process of that group. And, and the stories of how God's Holy Spirit has been so abundantly poured out on women pastors throughout the world, particularly in China, in China, where the Adventist church has been mostly led for, by women for years and where the gospel is flourishing, none of those stories were permitted to be told or to be shared with those who were gathered to make that important decision. The voices testifying to the Spirit's power through the lives of women leaders were intentionally silenced. What would have happened in Paul's day if the stories of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles had not been told? Listen, breaking down the gender barrier of subordination will not split the church. I believe that in the end, it will make the church more effective in meeting its mission because it allows the full recognition and deployment of fully half the available workforce to propel the gospel into the world. Now here's what I want to do with the rest of my time this morning. I want to share with you a bit of my story and then next week, we'll look together at a little more detail at some of the biblical material. 37 years ago, this coming September, I arrived on the campus of Andrews University with an awareness that God might be calling me out of a career in engineering and into a life of pastoral ministry. I'd been a Christian for only four years, and I had never thought much about the gender issues within Christianity. I was just happy to have been found by Jesus. But I was single, and I had thought a lot about that issue. I discovered there were about 180 men in my seminary class, most of whom were married, and exactly two women, a girl named Becky Lacey and a girl named Colette Kroll. In obedience to my father's request, because he also wondered whether his 26-year-old son would ever find a mate, on the first day of class, I chose to sit between those two girls who were sitting together on the pew, probably for mutual defense. And how that happened is a story for another day. But in the months that followed, there were about six or eight of us single seminarians who hung around a lot together. We studied together, we ate together. Colette and Becky and a fellow named Randy Roberts and me and a few others. It was intriguing to me that neither Becky nor Colette even among dozens of eligible guys, ever had many dates. And it soon became apparent why they didn't. It wasn't because they weren't good looking, because they were. It wasn't because they were socially awkward, they were not. It was because they were breaking new ground within the church, and that always comes at a price. Becky and Colette were the first two females ever to be sponsored and sent by a local conference to the seminary to earn their MDivs, and they were actually pastors before they had got there. They had been working as pastors in churches in their sending conferences, and a lot of the guys seemed to have a problem with that, which made it a little easier for me, of course, as far as the dating thing was concerned, a little less competition, but it was also perplexing to me because as a relatively new Adventist Christian and as a student of Adventist history at the Adventist Seminary, I knew that one of the co-founders of the whole church had been a woman, that she had been instrumental in the development of the largest Protestant parochial school system in the world, that she had been a gifted teacher and also a visionary leader, that she had been called by God not only to speak didactically, but also prophetically. And that, yes, there was even solid evidence that she had held the status of ordained minister within the church. So why, I wondered, did so many of my male colleagues have a problem with women pastors? I'll tell you the answer to that in a week or two when we take a look at the fascinating history of this thing. 
But the unease about women pastors didn't make sense to me. It took about, oh, six or eight months before I really began to know Colette. And one day, because I asked her, she told me about her call to ministry, why she was at Andrews, how her chosen career path had not been theology, it had been medicine. Her dream was to become a doctor. Kind of wish she had. We'd have been a lot richer. But she told me how she had been succeeding at her schooling on the path to her profession in medicine. She told me how God had interrupted her plans by miraculously speaking to her and redirecting her life. It wasn't just an audible command, although it was that, which was something I had never experienced before, but it was a whole series of people and circumstances falling remarkably into place that put her on track for pastoral ministry. I hope someday she will share that story with you. At that time, no other woman in our church had ever been down that path in the same way that God was calling Colette and Becky down that path. No female theology graduate had ever been offered a job in pastoral ministry by a conference president before. It had never happened. The odds were it would not happen for Colette either. It was a terrifying proposition, really. And she had to decide whether or not she would be obedient to what God was doing in her life or not. She chose obedience. And when she graduated with a theology degree from Walla Walla College, she was the first one offered a position ahead of all her male companions. In her first district in Spokane, it became obvious that God had not only called her, but that he was working through her ministry, that he was, that he was giving her fruit. And two years later, the Upper Columbia Conference recognized that fact and sent her back to Michigan to Andrews to finish her schooling which is where she met me. An event, I'm sorry to say, made her own employment situation within our church much, much more complicated. But that also is a story for another day. But in comparing her calling to my calling, it was very obvious to me that God had been every bit as active in bringing her to that point in her life, professionally speaking, as he had, had, had been in mine. In fact, more so. If the Bible forbade women pastors, I wondered, then what was God doing? Since God had called her and blessed her in her ministry and given her fruit from her work, it just seemed to me to be good and right and honorable that he had followed his leading. Who can argue with that? But people did argue. There always has been plenty of people who believe what she does is morally wrong, based on their, either their ingrained uh, tradition or their studied belief in the divine subordination of females to males. Colette will tell you she never wanted to be a trailblazer. She never relished being a reformer or a demolisher of inequality. She is by temperament a healer, not a fighter. She is by nature sensitive and perceptive, not pushy. Pastoral leadership was not something she chose. It hurt her when seminary classmates would stop her outside the classroom and tell her she had mistakenly stumbled into the wrong building and that the nursing college was across campus. But she persevered. Even in the face of significant gender-based employment discrimination, which came later, on the very first day of our second district together, in a little church in northern Idaho, the head elder met us at the door of the church with his arms crossed across his chest and announced that he didn't believe in what she was doing, that it was morally wrong for a young woman to usurp a man's role. Well, what do you say to that? We spent six years there. We never engaged that man in a nitty-gritty study of God's word on the subject. But here's what happened. He watched her, and he saw what God was doing in her ministry. And one day, he knocked on our door, and he said he'd changed his mind. 
He said he couldn't argue anymore with how God was obviously working. It reminded me of Peter. If God gave them the the same gift that he gave us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? That man and his wife became two of our closest friends and colleagues in ministry in that little church. It has often been lonely for Colette because when you're way out there on the front leading edge of the curve of some new thing, not many people understand. And even I haven't always understood how it feels to be called and gifted and placed but not fully recognized by the church that you serve. But she has persevered and she has brought blessing. You folk may not understand What a treasure you have in Colette, but you have one. Not many churches ever get the privilege of being taught by a woman or led by one in the pastoral sense, but you have had that privilege. Now, she's not perfect. I could tell you stories. And again, those are for another day. None of us are perfect. Leaders make mistakes. I've made plenty. But she is a pioneer. And you do have a little piece of history here, whether you realize it or not. And by the way, our Washington Conference now has three lady pastors who lead their own congregations. Our newest one is Natalie Dorland, who just took up the post as lead pastor of the Port Orchard Church. So we've got two of the three right here with us on the peninsula. Colette in Port Townsend, and Natalie in Port Orchard. Natalie has been in regular digital communication with my older daughter, Katie, trying to encourage her toward faithfulness, for which I am greatly thankful. My daughter, Katie, will not listen to a man. She will not. She has to listen to a woman. Over the years, Colette has matured used to be that she was real fiery about this thing, you know? But years ago, she backed away from the militancy over women's ordination in the larger church just so that she could do the work that God put before her in the local church. Doesn't mean that she didn't care. It just means that she disciplined her focus and kind of removed herself from that whole process. And then about eight years ago, She read about an Adventist woman clergy conference on the campus of Andrews University. She hadn't been back there in more than two decades. She said, maybe I ought to go to this one. And she did. She left me and Amy to fend for ourselves. We had to eat top ramen soup and do our whole laundry for a week. But she heard some of the most respected theologians and pastors of our church talk about why they supported gender-inclusive ministry. She heard top administrators in our church say they were willing to put their careers on the line because it was time to do what they believed was the right thing to do. But what really gripped her were the stories of how God is using a new generation of young women to lead the church forward. She met dozens of young women pastors who have raised up their own healthy, thriving congregations. She met women senior pastors who lead lead big multi-staff churches in big cities. She heard the stories of women coming out of China. You know, those stories and other places where we have all been told that the culture won't tolerate women leaders. But in truth, there have been women leaders operating successfully there for decades. And she met young lady seminarians who now comprise large percentages of every seminary class. And when she came home to pastor with me in our large church and to lead her own congregation in Freeport, there was a new sparkle in her eyes, a new hope. And then, two years after that, God intervened in Colette's life again. This time it was a test over her loyalty and mine to the fifth commandment. God had given her, at long last, a congregation of her own to lead in Freeport, and now he seemed to be asking her to lay that on the altar. Her mom 
asked her to come home. And so voluntarily, she resigned her position in that little church, a position she had waited 25 years for God to give her. She laid it down to honor her mother and the commandment and pull up roots and come out here. And you folk made the decision to take her on part-time as your pastor, and you don't know how much that has meant to her in the larger scheme of things. You helped her to understand that God wasn't finished yet with what he had started in her life 30 years ago. And then, a year and a half after that, completely out of the blue, completely unforeseen, God gave her another church of her own to lead, Port Townsend. It was almost as if God was saying, you gave up a big piece of your life to honor me and my commandments, so now I'm giving it back to you. And that's our story. And it's important to understand the story before we look at the biblical material together. And we'll do that next week. We'll take a look at it, how I have come to understand it. And I have studied it carefully because it concerns me. I have a dog in this fight. But let me give you just a little teaser, a broad picture of where we're going next week. And this is the broad picture, okay? I believe that God is calling us back to the original design when it comes to the role of women. Jesus himself sets the tone for it. He called people to look beyond the brokenness of today to back to the beginning, to the way things were originally intended to be. In the beginning, before the fall, men and women participated equally in the image of God without even a hint of subordination of one to the other. And I'll show you why I believe that to be so. Not everybody does. But if you do, it becomes a kind of foundational text. It becomes an ideal that God calls us to strive for in a broken world. The fall in Genesis 3 does introduce into the fallen order a submission of wives to husbands within the family system, but not a general subordination of all women to all men. And I'll try to show you why I believe that to be true as well. If we have time, or maybe the following week, we'll look at the history of how things ended up the way they are today. And that's actually quite a fascinating history. Why is it, anyway, that most Christians believe Sunday is the day of worship, and when you die, you don't really die, and that women are naturally subordinated to men? Why is that? How'd that all come to be? Finally, we'll see how Paul's writing in the New Testament maintains the Edenic model. In other words, the ideal of Eden becomes the lens through which we approach those texts in the New Testament that seem to forbid a woman's leadership role within the church. I mean, throughout all these years I've been with Colette, that's how I've had to come at it. Okay? Not just because I've seen how God has blessed her ministry, but because God has worked through the ministry of all kinds of women in the church of old. In other words, if you say Paul forbids women to teach men, what do you do with Priscilla in Acts 18, who taught Apollos? What do you do with women like Huldah in the Old Testament, who taught kings? If you say that Paul forbids women to lead, what do you do with Phoebe in Romans 16, who was the deacon of the church in Chentria? Or Junia, a woman Paul says was outstanding among the apostles, a woman apostle. Imagine that. Of course, there are some people who believe Junia was male, not female. We'll evaluate the evidence for that. Or what do you do with Judea or Syntyche, who were leaders in the church of Philippi? Or with women like Deborah in the Old Testament? If you say Paul forbids women to pastor, what do you do with Ellen White? Who says the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit prepares workers, both men and women, to become pastors of the flock of God. That's where we're going to go next week. In closing this week, I'm going to share a quote with you that I have saved. It was published among the hundreds of responses to the article in the church newspaper eight years ago when those two union conferences voted to ordain pastors without regard to gender. It was penned by a woman. Her name is Ann Fisher. I will let her words 
finish this message. She writes, This is the first time I have expressed my opinion publicly, but I feel compelled to share my feelings at this time. As a young woman, I felt a call to ministry, but in those days, a woman in ministry was unthinkable, so I married one instead. We spent our lives working for the church as missionaries in the former Far Eastern Division with the Chinese people. As many of you know, most of the pastors in mainland China are ordained women. God has used women in a mighty way to grow and nurture the church in China. This was done without any vote by the GC or any man claiming church authority. God chose these women. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the results are evident to the glory of God. We were members of Pioneer Memorial Church when Esther Knott joined the pastoral team. I still remember the first sermon Esther preached at PMC. It was my first experience hearing a woman preacher. I was so emotionally touched that I cried. God created us in his image, both male and female. However, we women only get to hear God's message through male voices and thus only experience one side of God's image. Men can never understand this, and they are the ones in our church with the power to make decisions for all of us. We need to see God through a woman's eyes as well as a man's to get a complete picture. As a grandmother, I pray that if my granddaughter hears a call from God to ministry, she will not be discouraged or disheartened by men. God needs every Christian, male and female, young and old, to call a lost world to repentance before it's too late. Don't turn away half the reapers. I'm going to ask you to stand. I know, I know, it's hard to know which 15 of you are going to sing. But you do what your conscience thinks you should do here.